Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Souza Ma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Doc. Hello, Christina, and greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I am Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your medical guide today, along with Christina, as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, searching for optimal health. Today, we're going to go into the galaxy of pediatrics. Yay. <laughs> Are they really little people? Are you talking about the doctor? I don't know. We'll, <laughs> we'll see today. We have a very special guest with her, Dr. Pushan Chowdhury. And we're going to be speaking with her in just a few minutes and find out everything there is to know about pediatrics. And this is our first pediatrician, oh, by the way. Oh, is it really? Yeah. I've huh. been, I've been uh, looking for a pediatrician, not for myself. <laughs> Are you certain about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. Maybe I should. Uh, you know, there's always that possibility. I, you know, a pediatric psychiatrist, maybe. <laughs> that would be good. Hey, too much laughing there at that. So before we start, in case anybody has any pediatric questions or concerns or thoughts, how will they get in touch with us? Well, at any time during the show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Um, now, if you're watching the show um, tomorrow, a month from now, a year from now, you can still ask your questions or share your comments. Um, we will do our best to reply and uh, actually get the comment or question over to our special guest or Dr. Woolman and definitely sh um, send you a reply. Now, if you are listening to this as a podcast, just give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. And if it is a question, please be sure to leave your contact information so that we can reply. Thank you so much, Doc. Uh, you're welcome. And also, I would suggest people go to my Facebook page, The Medical Guide, for information on the shows and other uh, tidbits related to health and wellness and all those good things. So today, Christina, I would like to introduce, actually, you're better at introducing uh, Dr. Prashan Chowdhury, um, but uh, she's been a pediatrician for 10 years. We're going to talk with her about her practice, and we're going to talk with her about what it's like being uh, taking care of the future of society. And so without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Pushan Chowdhury. Welcome. Hello. Hello, Dr. Pushan Chowdhury. How are you? I'm doing good. And you? <laughs> good. Thank you so much for honoring our community today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited about the show. <laughs> Yeah. Are you really? Yes, I am. <laughs> okay, well, we'll see. Uh, I would like to, when I looked at your uh, resume, uh, you said uh, you wrote that you speak Bengali. I do. And I would love for you, as we do with many of our guests that uh, are fluent in other languages, we ask them to give a welcome to all of our Bengali-speaking uh, <laughs> right. viewers and our audience. So would you welcome them to Magical Medical Tour and tell them how delighted we are to have them as part of our global audience? Absolutely. Namaskar, Priyodarshok. Sagatam. Itamadarachkar Medical Magical Tour. Whoa. Ooh, beautiful. Love that. Thank you very much for that. So today, Pushan, uh, as the medical guide, I like to give our audience a direction that we're going to take. First, we're going to find out a little bit about you and why you went into medicine. Then we're going to talk about your practice itself. Uh, we want to learn about how to become a pediatrician, what are the uh, technical aspects of that. And then we're going to look at a number of pediatric issues today, including uh, childhood obesity, vaccinations, and we're going to look at a number of other things. Does that sound all right for you? Sounds great. Excellent. So we always try to find the heart and soul of our healers. What got you into becoming a healer? What were the deciding factors? Who was involved? When did it happen? Etc. So I have always known that I was going to go into the medical field. I, um, when I was a kid, my mom used to say that whenever there was a TV show on, I would always pick the one that had the medical shows. That was always my favorite. I always, um, 
uh, levitated towards that kind of a scenario. So I almost think it was a field that chose me. And, um, and, you know, and it was something that I felt more at home with. So it, you know, community service is something that I've always wanted to do. And what better way than to heal your community? Uh, very sweet. When you decided to do this, what uh, was the training necessary? Sometimes we like to tell our audience, people that are going into different specialties, and we always try and promote all of the healing specialties. So anybody that's thinking that they might want to be a doctor and then a pediatrician, what kind of training is necessary for that? So after you're done with college, you go into four years of medical school, and then you do three years of residency in pediatrics. And then there are subspecialties in pediatrics, aren't there? Correct. And so after you do your three years of residency, depending on the subspecialty that you want to go, you do another two to three years of fellowship. That's a lot of time. And and then you are always, as is everyone in medicine, you're always continuing your training and your education. So it's a lifelong learning experience. Absolutely. Every every 10 years you take your boards and you're constantly keeping yourself up to date because medicine always changes. There's always new, uh, there's always new data. There's always um, new guidelines. So you always want to keep yourself up to date. Yeah. And I, and I always think that's one of the exciting parts of choosing a field of medicine. It's always a frontier. You know, m- medicine is evolving, but I, I think may- major thing is that, you know, the, we don't know everything that we need to know about the human body. So that's why medicine is always evolving because the guidelines that we had 10 years ago are not something that we're using right now. So things change, but so is our understanding of the human body. You know, it's interesting when you talk about that because we always talk about guidelines and when, and we as physicians, when we deal with guidelines, it always comes out as gospel. And then 10 years later, it's, there's a new gospel. So that's why it's, it's, it's a guideline. It's a suggestion. <laughs> right. You see, you see, you know, medicine, this is where the part of, this is where art comes in. Medicine is also art. It's not all science. So mm. you have to take that individual and you have to take the, sometimes when I practice, I take some of the oh. guidelines that we used before to see if it works for the patient. The most important thing in medicine is to first do no harm. As long as you are not doing any harm and long as you have a great understanding with that parent and you understand that child, you can try things to improve their health okay and so that's why but things change and they evolve so they're all suggestions they're suggestions you've got to do what is best for the patient i love that so you've been in your practice you've worked in urgent care you've worked in a newborn nursery you've worked as a pediatrician in inpatient pediatrics in hospitals and outpatient services in all of this realm what gives you the most joy in your practice the kids always always now there are lots of different kinds of kids so mm-hmm. is there something special in there that gives you most of the joy i mean obviously that's why you went into pediatrics right because you could have gone into surgery or pathology or radiology but you chose pediatrics and i always find that the people that choose their uh, specialty is usually there's a personality that goes with it and and a joy uh any type of a specific incident that you remember that gave you some extra happiness Pediatrics always fun. I I have walked in ever since my third year uh, rotations in pediatrics. I walked in there and I felt like home. It's you're always happy. You cannot be sad around a kid because kids are remarkable. They never just they never really complain when they feel okay. They're up and playing and bouncing around. They get better, <laughs> um, and they're so like they're so innocent. And they will come up to you and say, "How are you doing? Can I give you a hug?" There is 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 the, there's none of that doubt. It's just so innocent and simple. It's just a great joy. And pediatrics differ from adult medicine in the fact that a two week old is different than a four week old is different than a six week old. So when you see um, the human body evolved. That's what you really see in the first 18 years is what I do, zero to 18. You see that brain develop, that mind develop, that 
body develop and you know and and it's pretty much very parallel to how uh medicine has developed just simply because our body's constantly changing not you know not ever so much as the first 18 years so it's it's fascinating to watch you know it can be challenging but it's always fascinating and and I absolutely love that I did too. I obviously before I went into emergency medicine, I had to go through medical school mm-hmm. and and uh, all the other training. And it was always fun being on the pediatric wards and playing with the kids. And even in the emergency department, it was always fun when the kids came in and you could play with them uh, and have a good time. Especially for me, the the great challenge of if, if a child needed to be sutured, and you know how scared they are because they're mm-hmm. looking at twelve foot long needles and giant uh, knives and things like that. But when you can make them laugh and be happy and their parents get amazed and say, is that my child there who's laughing while getting sutures? Wow. I love that. That's a great part of it. So there's also the difficult challenges. You mentioned there are challenging aspects for you. Uh, Is there anything that you have gone through and experienced that still haunts you? You know, uh, maltreatment, of a child, child abuse, death, um, has all, it's, it's, that's the hard part of a pediatric medicine. One of my, um, one of my heartbreaking stories at residency was, a was a young man that we had in our unit. He was in my unit for about two months. He's, he was about 15 years old. He wasn't born, he was born quite, um, healthy and happy. And around five years of age, he had a car accident that left him dependent on a feeding tube and a breathing tube. Mm-hmm. Shortly after that accident and the stresses that brings with it, the mom and dad um, divorced and they moved on, um, you know, away from each other and then found uh, different respective families. But this child was in a group home, is in a, in a home actually that takes oh. care of kids like that in a different state than the mom and the dad. And honestly, they were keeping him there because of legal issues that they were still fighting. So 10 years of legal issues. And he was on my unit for three months. Mm. And he came in for something very, quite very simple that we took care of within the first two, three weeks. Um, he was there for three months because we couldn't find a placement for him that we could mm. get the parents to agree on. But not in that time did either one of them show up to see him. Oh, It was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. I mean, the nurses were more of parents. We were more of his parents and family than his parents were. And that, to me, is absolutely horrific. I mean, what are we doing to him? Poor thing, just stuck in that body. There's no love, just the feeling of unwanted. That is just not, I mean, it's not right. Mm. And so it, 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 it hurt. It hurt a lot for me to take mm. care of that patient. Mm. It took a lot of, you know, of me to do that and then to see him going. And I was really worried that, you know, what the rest of his life is going to be. He's going to be in three years. He's going to be an adult. And, you know, adult services are not the same as pediatric services. And I'm worried about him. Yeah, that's uh, thank you for sharing that story. There are so many stories like that, and I think it's very important for people that are choosing a field of medicine. There is, just to know, there is a lot of joy mm-hmm. and wonderful experiences, uh, but there's also a lot of heartbreak and heartache, but we get through that. That's a, that's an important part for us as, as physicians to get through that and learn from it and to uh, become stronger for the next for the next person that needs our care. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, you know, let's stay in that category mm-hmm. for a, a little while. One of the more difficult things uh, in being a physician is to work, especially in pediatrics, is to work with parents to help make a decision that a child should not be alive anymore. Uh, there are certain times uh, when they're born with genetic defects and, and they're lacking the ability to have a regular life and people are grasping and holding on. How do you work with parents when you confront either a child, a newborn that maybe we should stop life-sustaining systems or uh, a child who might be six or seven years old who has developed a severe a plastic anemia, some kind of a blood disorder, and is probably going to die. And parents are holding on. How do you how do you counsel them? So it's 
I, I want to say that this is something I don't have to do because this is usually done by the hospital uh, provider that's taking care of the patient. Um, I haven't done hospital medicine in a long time, or if it's um, cancer that we're looking at is the hematologist, oncologist who's, um, who's taking care of a patient. But the thing is that it's never difficult, no matter, it's, 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 re, it's never easy. It's very difficult to counsel somebody to tell them that, you know, your child's going to die. And no matter what we do, we're going to, medicine is going to fail you because we don't, we can't cure this. We can't take care of this. Or if we do, the rest of his life will not be normal. It is a very hard decision and hard conversation that you uh, that you do with those parents. And there's no easy way. The most important thing is that you want to be as honest as possible, non-judgmental, and let the family make the decision and let them know that you're there for them, regardless of whatever choice they make. Mm, well said. Thank you for that. Uh, Christine, any thoughts on anything we're talking about so far? So many thoughts, of course. <laughs> <laughs> it deals with children. <laughs> I know. I love children. I know. And yes, of course. I mean, I, I think these are some some very powerful questions that um, that you're sh- uh, sharing answers to, um, Pushan. That that um, you know is is never easy. I mean, I mean, what you've experienced in the hospital and how you would need to share information with some parents and their families on difficult decisions. I mean, I, I can't imagine how you go home every day because it, this is a child we're talking about. This is not, you know, an elderly person who's lived a, a, a full life. This, these are like children and babies. And sometimes I, I know that when I've volunteered in, in wards to hold children or play with them and, and babies to know that they are basically dying of leukemia and they're, they, they only have a few days left. It's, it, and to watch the families and what they go through. I found it extremely difficult to even go home. You know, I, I take my hat off to you that you are able to keep working with these families and helping them through these times. It's uh, quite amazing. Um, it takes a very incredible individual, as far as I'm concerned, to be able to do this. And what a very gift. special, very, very special, special. What a gift. So we're going to uh, start talking about a few topics now, Pushan. Is that all right? Sure. Okay. So one of the major topics right now in the 21st century, we have an epidemic, maybe a pandemic, going around the world right now. Uh, it's called childhood obesity. And this is something that's very interesting because it's it's not a communicable disease, but it's challenging and it's going to be one of the most important things that we deal with for our future because all of the kids now that are obese, overweight and obese in childhood, many of them will become obese in adulthood and therefore more susceptible to some of the diseases like cardiovascular disease, strokes, uh, diabetes type 2. We're seeing that all over the world right now. The World Health Organization said that there's over 41 million kids, 42 million potentially kids right now uh, that are overweight or obese. Uh, And it's it's growing, too. It's doubling and quadrupling as we look at the statistics. And this so, is international, Glenn? Well, the, the statistics for the World Health Organization say uh, this was in about 2012, 2013. There were about 42 million uh, children that were overweight. And the, many of them, obviously, are in uh, developing countries, but still, they're part of our globe and they're part of us. 42 million, just mm. as a number. And when I, you know, I walk around uh, the city, whatever city I'm in, uh, and I see these little five-year-olds, five, a five-year-old child who is already obese, not just a little bit overweight. And we can discuss the difference between overweight and obese. But this is something that's really important. And as a pediatrician, you have the first shot at it. Taking- <laughs> <laughs> so... What's what? What are your thoughts on uh, childhood obesity, and what are we doing for it? So let me start with a little bit of data. So this is 
for the U.S., in the last uh, 30 years, we have quadrupled uh, obesity in our teenagers and tripled in our children. The main, main problem is the concept of what is ideal weight that has shifted. Many studies have shown, and studies are still ongoing, that what parents think is a good weight for their child is actually the child is already overweight or obese. The other is the food intake. We have a lot of fast food, um, and it's a society now where, you know, we, convenience is the way that people are, um, are going. So it's almost easier to stop by McDonald's or Kentucky Fried Chicken and get, uh, get food from there. But also the portion size of what they think that their five-year-old should eat is also is larger than what they should be eating. So a lot of these kids, when they're saying, no, I don't want to eat anymore, they're like, you need to sit down and eat this. Otherwise, you're not going to get... You're not going to be able to play. You're not going to be able to do, um, you know, or you're not going to be able to go watch video games or, you know, whatever it might be. So that is um, one of the one of the big things. The other thing is that because of convenience, a lot of kids are not playing in the parks. They are not playing that part or neighborhoods might not be very safe for the parents to let their kids play outside. So we see a lot of that. So all of that has taken a toll in our society. So now we have what we call an obese society. Just mm. a, very rarely do I see a kid right on their, uh, right on their weight, uh, weight bracket. Uh, when I talk to parents about your child is in the overweight category, they're like, well, um, you know, it could be all muscle. Well, I'm looking at the child. This is not all muscle. <laughs> now I can realize that some of your <laughs> some of your athletes might be there, but this is not muscle. Or if I tell them you've already above the 95th percentile on your BMI, that means that weight is from excess fat. It is not from uh -huh. muscle. There is no muscle. So a lot of the misconception of like it's a muscle weight. Um, you know, in that, that is a little bit of a misconception there. And the fact that so much calories are going into your drinks that a lot of people are not realizing fruit juices. Um, you know, I have kids who are like, well, I water it down. It's still sugar. Oh, doesn't matter. You're still giving the kid or Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid is not a juice. <laughs> so, um, so you do see that. So it's many, many little things. It's just the, you know, um, I have one mom who wants her child to lose weight, but she works. And so all her three kids come home at different times. They do not have a family meal. She cooks and they take whatever they want from their whatever there is stocked in the fridge. And she makes sure that she stocks stuff that they will eat, not necessarily healthy. Because an eight-year-old, if you give him a bag of chips and a carrot, he'll pick the chips because it tastes better. So a lot of these kids do not know how to um, choose the appropriate meals for them. So, you know, so it's a combination of many things. So, uh, so and that is why we are where we are right now. And mm. that's why this has become a huge problem because um, in the last, I think, five years, maybe, we are starting to see type 2 diabetes in kids, which was almost unheard of when I was training. Yeah, It was unheard of when yeah. I was training. In fact, yeah. I, we didn't even call it type 2 diabetes at that time. Mm -mm. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, I, when I walk around and see these kids and I see, uh, you know, I'll see a group of kids with their parents and they'll all be walking around all overweight and all eating ice cream cones. Mm-hmm. So what do we need to do as, as the medical society and public health? This is, this is now a public health issue. This right. is not just a family issue. This is a public health issue. So what do you as a pediatrician do for your patients and how do you feel about you know, the bigger picture? What do you do for all of us right now? You have to open that conversation. So when they come to see me, usually before on their health exams is when I was um, doing that, but now I do it with every visit. Unless the kid is severely sick with something else, if they're coming in for a little work and you know, they're way above their chart on their growth, on their weight, I open that conversation. I'm like, let's talk about health. And what has helped is that in the last um, several years with Michelle Obama coming up with the uh, 5 two, uh, one zero, um, uh, way to go, you know, with kids um, to, to be more aware of health. 
that has really helped in schools becoming more aware because when I started this, I mean, in, in the past even five, six years, I see where I've had parents who were like, no, he's just that way. I don't want to talk about it to now. Like, well, I'm hearing a lot about this. Schools are bringing it up. I hear it a lot in TV. So a lot of the times I have parents who are now, are they okay on their weight? So this is a conversation that we have at every visit that we talk about it, where we're at, what we're eating with nutrition. And even if you are okay with your weight for your height, I still talk about nutrition because we need to know what is good for you, what is not good for you. We want to make sure that you're eating a healthy diet, living a healthy lifestyle, um, regardless of where your weight is. So that's very, very important. Kudos to Michelle Obama for picking that as uh, her her major uh, project. Yes. I'm so glad she did. Yeah, that was great. Uh, I was very happy to see that mm-hmm. also. But, uh, so one of the th- one of the difficult parts I would imagine is as a pediatrician, and you're focusing on the little ones. Uh, it's really the parents in this particular case that need to be part of the process here. Uh, you can't have uh, overweight, obese parents who are uh, eating snack food and telling their children to eat carrots. No, and you no. Then the kid will no, because the kid will think I, I am being that punished all the time. Yes, no. We we approach it as a family approach. One of the things that I was working on was a weight management program for pediatrics because you have a lot of bariatric programs for adults, but you don't have that mm-hmm. for kids. So one of the things that we were working on is getting a program together where we approach it from a. a from the point of the family. Mm. And and it's going to be very much customized because we have different families. We have Hispanic culture group. We have African. We have different cultures. And depending on what they, um, you know, every culture has their own foods that they like. So you have to work within that food group and, you know, food type of foods that they're eating. So um, we are definitely, um, you know, kind of working that, doing that approach. We are also having counselors um, to talk about, um, especially with your teenagers who are like 15 and 16 years old and they're very, very depressed that they're overweight, yet they um, eating that feel-good food, which is your ice cream and chips, which is just making them gain the weight even more. So it is definitely something that we need to approach. If they are younger, when they're five or six or seven years old, if you can counsel the parents, you you might be able to get, get it with the kids just simply because they can modify their kid's diet and their lifestyle. But once you hit a teenage years, they are your uh, many adults or transitioning into adulthood and they would like a little bit say so it's very important to involve those kids in there with me in my practice i start involving kids as long as they're interested i might have a five six-year-old who doesn't care or i might have an eight-year-old who asks me a lot of questions and want to be involved in it i let them be involved in their care because it's important to give them choices and to do you know and to allow them to manage their own health and they feel if they do well, they feel a lot of satisfaction from that. Sure. What about right at the very beginning when the the child is a newborn and they're in a hospital in many cases and, and if they're uh, breastfeeding, that's one thing. If they're not breast, being breastfed and they're being supplemented by uh, something in the hospital, mm-hmm. many of those things that I've looked at over the years have a lot of sugar in them and they're not really healthy and we're hospitals. We're supposed to be doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Has that changed at all? So we, st- so you know, formula has improved over time. The choices have improved. Um, before what they had, um, very few choices. The goal of formula is always to get it as close to breast milk as possible. Okay, that is the goal. Try to get it as close as possible to breast milk. However we are not able to get 100%. Breastfeeding is the best for your kids. However, there are situations where they are not able to breastfeed their kids. I have moms who are on antidepressant. Those are contraindications for breastfeeding. And just to just to kind of tell them that you are doing the wrong thing by doing formula, it's going to actually hamper that maternal child bond. So you don't want to do that. So again, these are very specific cases. You have to take each case um you know on its own but we absolutely um absolutely support breastfeeding i would like to see them exclusively breastfeed their kids at least until six months that will 
if they could do it a little bit longer, that'll be great. But if they can do it up until six months, I will be very happy, um, very happy with that. A lot of the times what I see is all the moms have the intention of breastfeeding their kids, but because of family obligations have to go back to work. And although they are trying to pump every now and then, they will have to do the formula supplementation. What we do in our practice is that we follow them. We follow them on their growth chart and um, try to, um, you know, just to kind of make sure that they're still in the right, um, right, um, uh, grow, you know, curve and they're not overgaining their weight and they're eating the right amount. Um, so we kind of follow them very, very closely. Um, closely on that. We wait until six months to start any kind of baby food. Um, and then we also kind of make sure that, you know, the, the amount that the child is getting is appropriate for the age and they're not getting overfed or just because the child is crying doesn't necessarily mean the child is hungry. So um, so those are little cues that we talk to parents about trying to get that child in an appropriate and in a healthy lifestyle. Uh, speaking about breastfeeding mm-hmm. for another moment or two, mm-hmm. you talk about six months, and mm-hmm. I see some uh, mothers that are breastfeeding their children up to three, four, five, six years of age. Do you uh, see that in your practice at all? Um, uh not not very much uh the group of uh but i have heard of that i usually just see mostly the moms who are breastfeeding up until like 15 months um 18 months and then the usually the kids have weaned themselves off there are some that uh, want to breastfeed the child um longer um most of the data doesn't doesn't show an exact like okay you must stop breastfeeding at this age however from a social implication, do you want your five-year-old, if you're outside, just, you know, breastfeed me now? So, um, so you want to kind of, um, kind of, kind of think about, think about that. So there, that is a little bit of a uh, grayer just because we don't have the data to say, you know, this is only beneficial until this, um, this, uh, this time, you know, um, the American Academy of Pediatric, uh, recommends exclusive breastfeeding until six months of age. If they can do it a little bit longer, like one, uh, one and a half, that'll be great. But that first six months would be really great. You mentioned earlier uh, in your program that with weight management about bariatrics. Mm-hmm. Do you want to explain that for a moment? So when, one of the things that they were working on um, that the American Academy of Pediatrics, this is actually the Arizona chapter. Um, I was practicing in Arizona for the past 10 years. So this is the Arizona chapter that came up with a four-step process where you start with the first step, which is mostly what you do at the pediatrician's office. You talk about nutrition. And this 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 can be every visit. And the child does not necessarily have to be in the obese or overweight range to start this conversation. You're just talking about nutrition. You're making sure that the child is getting appropriate amount of sleep, activities. Um, so you could, you know, you can do that. And if they are really doing well, you can, you know, address this at every well, uh, well check. So that is something that, um, can be done in most pediatricians' office. Stage two and three becomes a little bit more intense. These are kids that have actually fallen into the over, um, excuse me, over, uh, on the obesity category. And you're starting to talk about, let's do some nutritional changes. Let's get some lab work. We're starting to look at family history. And then stage four is really the, the last resort is where they're talking about medication or a surgery, but in a pedi- you know in a pediatric um, community, most of the data comes first from adults, and then and then they go into um, and then they go into uh, into the pediatric um, pediatric community. But they don't have a lot of data as not as much data as they do for the adults that they you know they don't have that kind of data for the kids so some of it is borrowed is borrowed from there so we're looking at um you know if you are 12 and over and you are really obese and you are not able to move and you've tried all the other ways with the with the activity modification and the nutrition modification, um, are you a candidate for starting medication or bariatric surgery? Just simply because if you know uh, we're not, if this is kind of ongoing, you are going to be at risk for that heart attack and that type two diabetes and etc. Boy, it's so sad to even be thinking about the possibility of a 
yes. 12 or 13 year old having bariatric surgery. You know, it is. And it, as I said, it is the last resort. And some of that data is from adult adults, but that's how most medicine is. Most of the data first comes from the adults and then we uh, move into the pediatric community because obesity has long for long term has just been associated with the adult community. Okay. So, but of late it's been associated with the pediatric community. So this is very fresh. This is very new. There's still a lot of uh, um, studies that needs to be done, um, a lot of data that needs to be um, uh, uh, collected. However, the most important thing is recognizing because if you don't recognize, which you're not going to be able to help. So that the awareness and the recognition and as a community altogether to try to make a difference where you include schools, you include pediatricians office, you include daycares, you include everything that kids are involved in. If you include all of that and as a community, you try to address this, we're going to be successful. Um, um, sorry, Glenn, can, can push on, mm-hmm. can you elaborate on the bariatric surgery? What that, is okay so that is something okay i don't feel like i'm um, qualified to um kind of go into details of that because i'm not a surgeon okay but basically there are uh, several types of bariatric surgeries that we do in adults where you can um uh you can cut a sleeve which you take part of the um you know you kind of can take part of the stomach um out or you can staple it you can do a lap band Mm -hmm. so there's many different types um uh, not all of them will be probably, uh, you know, not all, most kids won't probably be candidate for all of those. Okay. Mm-hmm. And those are last resorts, um, uh, that I think that the bariatric surgeon that was on my team, I think he has done one on a 17 year old, mm-hmm. but you know, from 18, we considered them adults. So mm-hmm. very close to, um, uh, you know, but again, I said that those are rare. What we're really trying to drive is the healthy lifestyle yes. and the healthy diet. You know, that's very interesting. Now, now I understand the medical name for it. Mm-hmm. I know two people who've had that done as adults. Wow. And I, 10 years later, they basically came back to where they were mm-hmm. And it comes back to the lifestyle. Yes. You know, it comes back. Yes. If you're, if you can have all that done. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like plastic surgery. You can have all of it done. But if you're not willing to change your lifestyle, that body is just going to pop back. Right? I absolutely agree with that. I mean, that li- that's why we drive that lifestyle change. Mm-hmm. You've got to do that. Um, one of the nurses that I used to work with who went through that procedure, she had to show her uh, bariatric surgeon that for three months she can be on a good lifestyle. She had to show that she had to kind of prove to him that this is something that she's going to continue with. She was a success with hers just simply because I think that she followed that. She stayed within that lifestyle and she tried to um, uh, uh, do the exercise, eat properly, but not everybody does it. And mm. she, she's a rare case. She is. And I recognize mm-hmm. that. Um, and not everybody does it. So they pop back. And that goes with any kind of dieting and any kind of yoing, any kind of medications that you want to take to lose the weight. If you, It all falls back into lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're trying to push that more than anything, especially for our kids, because they're still growing. Mm. And it's so important yes. that they understand the importance of a good lifestyle to sleep. You got to sleep. Well, you know, all these teenagers wants to go to bed at like two o'clock in the morning and it has to be (laughs) up at six o'clock. It's really not Mm -hmm. helping. Mm -hmm. You got to sleep well. You got to eat well. You got to, you got to exercise. It's all of that. It, all of that is, is in there. So, um, and it's, it's very difficult because, um, you know, in, in the last Several, several years, we have just fallen back into this kind of lazy lifestyle is what I call it. Not most, you know, just kind of, you know, let's take the escalator, not the stairs, mm-hmm. um, uh, kind of a lifestyle. So just to kind of get people to change that and to, and it's it's quite a bit of work, even though it's logical, it's actually quite a bit of work because people don't take to it easily mm-hmm. because you've done something for mm-hmm. a long time one way. Mm-hmm. 
One of the other issues that we always look at in medicine is people get the idea that, oh, I'm not too worried about this because there's a surgeon that could fix my knee or my shoulder or they could do this surgery and there's always that. People need to be aware there are, there are side effects and complications and the bariatric surgery, uh, many types of complications to be aware of, uh, malabsorption disorders, vitamin deficiencies, electrolyte imbalances. So this is not something, uh, that we should take lightly. Mm-hmm. Oh no, and it's 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 um, in the pedi. Um, I don't know how it works for the adults, but for pediatrics, we these surgeons will think twice before they put them under underneath the knife. They are very. They will push that diet and that healthy lifestyle. And I don't like to say, uh, you know, I, and I know I said diet, but these these kids do need to go into because we need to get them out, get the weight off of them so that they can start moving. Some of the kids, they are so heavy, they are not able to move, but we need to get that diet going, need to get the movement. And they're going to push that because like you said, those surgeries can have consequences mm. and, um, and there's not a whole lot of data in pediatrics. So um, absolutely. And that's the growing age. That's when, mm-hmm. that's where you need to kind of, you know, get all your nutritions in so that you can store it away. That's when you store it. So you want to be very careful. You know, what's really interesting. Um, sorry, Glenn, that I've been finding and I hear, um, you know, within, I can only speak for LAUSD, which is the the school district my son is in which has like 650,000 kids (laughs) in that one school district, you know, they removed physical education from school. And they feed uh, uh, for the lower income families. They have breakfast and lunch every day for them. And, you know, blessed be that some of these children do have those two solid meals a day. They're not the best meals and they're very high sugar content most of the time. But the, the issue is, that they don't have the balance of any physical activity. And though they have physical education on the report card, and I always ask the teachers, what is the physical education? How are you grading them? Well, that's how they are during recess. And, okay, (laughs) it's like, pardon me? (laughs) I don't quite understand this. Um, And I know that there are some teachers trying to bring that back in, but in order to bring them in, they need grants, etc., (laughs) from different organizations to be able to bring in the physical education. Now, we're talking about school-age children from kindergarten to grade five. Now, is that not the most critical time of that developing body before puberty? I mean, as I'm asking you as a pediatrician. (laughs) Because once you get into puberty, that's a whole other stage in life. You know... Our system right now is not very conducive for that healthy lifestyle that we're looking for, okay? Um, In order for that to happen, you need parents involved. You need teachers involved. um, You need the school to support that. And like you said, taking out the physical education is not helpful because some of these kids might come from a neighborhood where they cannot go out and play. They can't do that. It's not safe for them. So they have to run around in school. And we says, you know... It's not physical education because the kid might just sit there mm-hmm. and read a book. That is not physical education. So, yes, they need it. And taking that stuff out is not being helpful. Um, we, you know, we are working toward, you know, as a society. So most of my experience is from the Arizona community. So in Arizona, we are doing um, talks at schools to say you need to, you need to have a nutrition come and evaluate your lunches. You need to have a physical therapy. I'm sorry. You need to have physical education in, um, at least an hour every day for each kid. Okay. Some of the high schools give the students options of whether or not to take physical, um, education. Mm -hmm. I didn't have that (laughs) (laughs) when I did high school here, I had to take it whether Mm -hmm. I liked it or not. And I think that it shouldn't be an option because it's such a vital part of them and part of their health that it should be included in there because whatever they do for that hour might be it because then they go home, they have to do homework. They might have to help with chores at school, um, at chores at home, and then it's time for them to go to bed. Mm -hmm. So it's very, very important to, um, Uh, get the community to do that but like you said the budgeting and the funding when the economy went down a good part of the budgeting just 
the schools lost a lot of their budgeting, and so that has become that has become hard. Um, also, the other thing is vending machines. Oh, oh! I think they removed that out of most oh, good, of our schools. Good, good. Yes. We we still have them. We are we are hoping that they put water in them. Yes, um, and maybe healthy snacks and stuff yes. like that in that. If so, that kids if you know if they want a snack that they can have that. So that is something that is definitely a, a, pro, a work. Uh, you know, it's a process. It's go. It's um, it's happening. So those are some of the things that are being worked on. I think that. It took us a long time to come to this point, and it's going to take us a little while to kind of go back to where we need to be. But they're working at it, some slower than others, but it's, it's, it's going. Mm-hmm. And um, so I don't know if that answered a little bit of your question. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope that, uh, you know, parents are, will listen to the show and pay heed to the fact that okay, we don't have it in the schools. So we have to, as parents, we have to pick up that bar and we have to hold it, you know, and, and get off the couch ourselves. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Because, you know, kids kids do what they see, not what you tell them to do. Right. And you have to, yes. And packed lunches. I mean, I have had so much success in my patients when I told them, why don't you pack your lunch? Yes. Just pack you know, if you don't think you can go to school and pick the right, which most kids cannot, right. or they may not have an option of something good, why don't you pack your lunch and take it with you? And that has made a big um, difference because if they're eating both breakfast and lunch at school, so that's almost two thirds of their meal that oh, they're yes. eating there. So it's a huge, so um, that has helped a lot. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. I, so I, yeah, I... parents have to, um, and I, I can see, how it could be hard on parents. I've, I've got single parents and mm-hmm. it's um, uh, not a whole lot of support. And so just um, it's uh, you have to be very creative on how you work with them. And as pediatricians, how we support them and say, maybe you can do it this way. So it's almost micromanaging and telling them this is how you need to have your meals packed. This is have to say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. This is how you pick. You know, so you have to work with them. Are you able to do this? And sometimes if you can get them to do the best, you have to take the lesser of two evils and mm-hmm. say, can you, can you do this mm-hmm. and give mm-hmm. them a little slack here? And so, and long as I see that they're making progress and they are trying, that's better than where they were. Right. So right. absolutely creating a system. Exactly. Yeah. Speaking of movement, <laughs> let's move on to another topic. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me to bounce. <laughs> I, I, I always want you to bounce. That's one of the favorite parts of the show yes, for all I of think, our audiences. I think all our kids should have bounce balls to sit on in class. Definitely. <laughs> It'll keep their spines moving at least. <laughs> so the way, the way our society works, it looks like people get illnesses and diseases and things like that. And then there are uh, the medical community tries to find solutions for them. And the pharmaceutical companies do a lot in terms of producing uh, drugs, medications, etc., when we talk today, now we're going to talk about vaccinations. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a vaccination to come onto the market, it has to go through uh, the pharmaceutical companies, and then it has to be approved by the Food and Drug Administration. And then the Center for Disease Control and Prevention uh, sets the guidelines and standards for the immunization schedules. And the Center for Disease Control and uh, Prevention works with... Uh, an advisory committee on immunization practices, which is made up of medical and uh, public health experts. Uh, And then also the American Academy of Pediatrics, which I'm sure you're part of, and the American Academy of Family Physicians also have to approve of it. Many years ago, we had maybe two or three or four vaccines. And now we have a very large number of vaccines that children are getting at an early age. And there's some controversy in it. Many, many people look at it and say, okay, this is what the doctor orders and this is what's healthy for my child and, and for society, so I'm going to take all of these vaccines. But there are others that say, wait a minute, uh, I don't necessarily want my child to have all of this. So this is because this is an important topic, how do you as a pediatrician deal with vaccinations uh, for your children? So... I support vaccinations. In my practice, 
The most important thing when a parent comes in for the rail child checkup, which is where we usually discuss the vaccinations, the first thing that I want to make sure is that the parent understands that I am here for the well-being of their child, okay? And that I am as transparent as possible. I want them to understand that. And then we discuss the vaccinations. And then we talk about, you know, if they have any questions, if they're worried about any hesitation, hesitancy. And so that's how I approach it. The first visit, either the first one they come in, we talk about the child, we talk about what their lives are, what they are looking for, you know, what they think a well visit should be. And we go through all of that. So, so that I can, you know, get to know the family, get to know their expectations, where their hesitancy is, and then come up with a plan. This is very much customized um, to each family, but I I'm a big believer of vaccines. I believe that they did a lot of, um, for um, taking care of a lot of the preventable um, diseases. So, um, so that's how I approach my patients. When you uh, have patients that say, I'm okay with the vaccinations, but I'd like to do it, not necessarily the way that the CDC is doing it, can we negotiate and have uh, maybe a few less at this point and a few more at another point? Is that something you work with or do you follow the specific guidelines, as you said before? So what I do is that I let the parents know that I don't believe the way that they want to do the vaccines. I believe that the CDC, so I, I let them know that we're very clear about what I believe so that they know where I am coming for. Okay. However, I will support them and but they will have to choose their vaccines and see because it's very difficult for me to say we'll do this don't do that because i think they're all important mm -hmm. so that is something you know and we definitely can you know talk about what each one of them um uh, uh you know each one of what the each one of the vaccines are about and what they are preventing and we go through the details i give them sheets that they can read about we talk about all the side effects and why i think it's okay for them to you know um, you know, what is the AAP vaccine schedule? And, and I feel that it is safe. Otherwise, I would not be offering this to their child um, if I did not feel it was safe for them. So we go through all of that. And then and if 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 they because parents have a right to refuse and they have that, you know, right. So I let them decide. But I my job is to make sure that they have all of that information and they know where I'm coming from and what you know, what I believe that way. It's it's not a surprise for them and they're comfortable you know, comfortable with me. So some of my parents, I have, most of my parents do take their vaccines on time. Um, I have some that, um, for, you know, whatever reason they want to, um, uh, change it and do it, you know, one at a time. Um, I have one lady that did that with only one of her kids and the rest, she did it right on time. So there are some of those, um, you know, I, I don't know what drove her decision um, uh, to do that, but every visit we have the same conversation. And then, like I said, you know, the parents, it's the parents' choice and because they have the right to refuse. So hopefully, um, you know, they, they know where I'm coming from and then um, we can come up with a plan for their child. What's your uh, answer when they say, oh, we hear that it causes autism and seizures and all sorts of other problems. So with the autism, it has not been proven. True. So, so there is, you know, there's no, so I tell them there's no data proving that. There is some of the, some of the vaccines, especially the MMR and the varicella at age one, if you give them together, they can provide a high fever. And so you can get seizures from it. And we don't give it together as a pro quad. We give them separately so that you don't get, um, don't get the high febrile seizures, what we call it. But then we have a discussion on febrile seizures. Febrile seizures, you can have febrile seizures in the first five, six years of age um, with just even a fever from um, a ear infection. Um, they do not harm you. Um, most important thing is fever management with that. And then, of course, also we talk about fever. Fever is not harmful for your body, okay? Fever is a reaction that the body has. It is nothing to be scared of. Um, after most vaccine, after just about all vaccinations, once you get that, um, 
antigen in your body, um, your body's trying to make antibodies for it. So you are going to have a little bit of a reaction. You're going to have a little bit of a fever for the first three days. You're going to feel a little bit like, okay, you're under the, the weather a little bit. Um, but all of that are temporary and it will pass. You're going to get a little bit of soreness on the site, um, maybe a little bit of redness. But like I said, all of that is part of that and it will pass. You know, many times uh, vaccinations have done such a good job in many cases that most of us don't even know what polio is. But when you look to countries that have not done the vaccinations and you see the ravages and the harm and the uh, distresses to families when things like polio come into a family situation with a child, it gives you a different light. We've done such a good job that people... Uh, seem to think that there are no diseases out there. But our immune systems, just like we were talking about earlier, the immune systems are trying to grow at an early age, and they're being exposed to all sorts of environmental toxins and nutritional toxins all the time anyway. Mm-hmm. Christina, any thoughts? Um, no, I, I mean, I'd like to know what happens if the family or the parents choose not to vaccinate. Do you still continue to keep that patient or? Absolutely. Because like, you know, I am there for the well-being of that child. And so what I like to do is to let them know that, you know, if there is a measles outbreak, if there is a pertussis outbreak in your school, your child may be asked to stay home. Mm-hmm. Um, so just know that, know some of those consequences. In Arizona, we get outbreaks of pertussis every year. Wow. Every year, because a lot of kids are not being vaccinated. Mm. Um, when I, I was, um, oh, I want to say maybe a few years ago, when we lost a child in our practice, um, a at uh, a six uh, six week old to pertussis, mm. because none of the older siblings were vaccinated. And this little kid didn't get a chance to get vaccinated. And it was two pertussis because they can go through apneic spell. This was not a patient of mine. It was a patient of the practice. It was a colleague of mine. And we lost lost that kid. So one of the things that we are very much dependent on is that herd immunity. And our herd immunity has um, is not intact anymore because there's so many people who are refusing vaccinations. Um, incidentally, a lot of people in my practice who refuse are actually ones living here most of my um most of my parents who are coming from underdeveloped countries they never refuse they never mm-hmm. refuse vaccines because i think they still see it they still mm-hmm. see it and they are it's it's very much a real thing for them but like you know like you said glenn we've done a, such a good job here that a lot of people are um are, are like is you know they're not even aware of it a good example will be the chickenpox some of the new physicians who are um graduating now have probably not seen chickenpox <laughs> and they have a <laughs> little that? bit of a yeah, little bit of a difficulty but some of us who have actually seen it because we've been practicing prior to the vaccine can you know can tell like no it's it's something very real mm. but you don't see it anymore Mm-hmm. So that's definitely can, um, you can feel like, you know, you feel like you're in a little bubble, but it's still around. It's still there. And the vaccines have done their jobs. Yeah, we, uh, we've talked about on this show, uh, one of the bills in California for the end of life option. Well, Governor Jerry Brown in California also uh, just recently signed a bill, Senate Bill 277, which uh, is a personal religious uh, belief exemption. So this is a very important bill that uh, people need to talk about in terms of making choices about vaccinations. We can get into that at another time. But I want to go over a number of areas, and I'd like you to give maybe one or two or three word answers just to get a, a couple of your thoughts on this before we end today's program. Uh, treatments for ADHD, ADD, autism, you know, we, we run right to medicines, but there should be other possibilities. What's your quick thought on that? Behavioral therapy. You want to always start with that. You, you don't want to just stick the kid on medication. Some kids might need it so that they're not constantly failing school. Um, but you, that behavioral therapy, that Excellent. is very, very important. Mm. Beautiful. Um, permanent makeup for kids and uh, breast implants for teenagers. Disagree. 
I do not think it's a good thing. Um, uh, if, you know, you know, in, 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 you have to really think about what kind of, um, what, what are we teaching them from an image point? You know, are, you know, you're not telling them that you're beautiful the way you are. We're telling them that, you know, beauty is, um, uh, media driven. So you have to look a certain way in order to be considered beautiful. Did you say permanent makeup? Uh, I said permanent makeup. There, there's a, there's a lot of people that, that are making choices now to have eyebrows and lips. So, well, you tell oh, us what you're saying. Yes. Um, but we're talking about little eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds, mm-hmm. acrylic nails. Um, I had a young lady that I had to talk to mom about because they were going to go and she was going to get, um, because that's what she wanted, she wanted to get acrylic nails and get a lip. Um, lip line tattooed in and so we had an extensive conversation on that with the child outside the room where i talked to the parent about yeah at eight years old eight years old Ooh, i'm Chris. so glad i didn't run across that parent <laughs> <laughs> you know being coming from the industry of being a makeup artist for so many years you know i mean we we know what illusions that we can create and that's the purpose of makeup it's you're creating illusions but mm. the ch- eight years old, I mean, the, the, the developmental stage is not even over. It's <laughs> far exactly. from being over. Wow. And you're going to manipulate the child's pigment and skin? Oh, dear God, I don't know. <laughs> so these, these are, you know, like I told that parent, that what are you telling her? That she is not beautiful the way she is? You're oh. going to give her a poor body, body image of self. And this is going to just escalate. So, like I said, like I said, one line answer. I disagree with that. <laughs> Excellent. That was good. I can never oh. count on Christina for a one line comment, though. Oh, not when it comes <laughs> to something like that. <laughs> I knew I'd get you riled up a little bit. Oh. Uh, Pushan, you were born in India, so Ayurvedic medicine and homeopathy were very important. Do you practice or do you work with alternative and integrative uh, therapists in any of your practice? So I don't have any training in Ayurvedic or homeopathic medicine. I'm very familiar with it growing up in India. Um, so, but I will tell you that especially integrative medicine is, um, you know, something that's coming into more and more in the forefront, especially in pain management, especially cancer pain. Um, a lot of the teams that what they work with, um, one of my colleagues in, um, Arizona, uh, was recently diagnosed with uh, breast cancer and, um, the team that she worked with, they worked with hypnotherapy, acupuncture. Um, so, the, you know, from a, from an anxiety level, from a pain level. Um, so I, I definitely, um, I definitely think that, um, it needs to be explored. We haven't found everything that we need to about the human body. And that's why we haven't found everything that we need about medicine. So we have to explore these, these arenas. We have to keep our mind open, um, to see what it can bring to us, what it can entitle for us. Cause you know, health is not just about physical bodies, also mental. Um, it's also about pain, which is very subjective. Um, so it is very important that we um, continue to explore these areas. Excellent answer. Uh, I think that I need to have another four hours of discussion with you. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure Christine would ask that, but we are coming to the end of the show today. Let's leave, let's leave the audience uh, wanting more. Do you have a health tip for us? I do. Health is wealth. So be happy, be healthy, and take care of yourselves. Mm. Mm. Very nice. Pushan, when you were preparing for this show, mm-hmm. was there anything that you wanted to mention that we didn't discuss today? No, I think we, I think we did a good job of covering a good variety of topics. We was, did. We didn't talk about your electronic medical record and your technology. No, uh, no we did not. But who, that is another very new forefront thing that is coming up also. Yeah. And that's going to make an impact in um, how we take care of patients also. Mm. Yeah, that's going to be great. Christina, mm-hmm. any final thoughts? Oh, no. I mean, it's all those thoughts. Are you kidding me? That four hours? Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well. 
I am grateful to our very special guest, Dr. Pushan Chowdhury, uh, for sharing her wisdom, expertise, and experiences with us and touching on some very important topics today. So thank you very much, Pushan. I would also like to thank all of my healers and teachers for allowing me to be on my journey. And I look forward to getting together with uh, the Yoga Hub team and Christina and Scovia and all of our global audience as we get together on Magical Medical Tour next week when we search for another way of finding optimal health. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Chowdhury, for joining us here. We really are honored by your gifts that you choose to share with our global community and hopefully we'll have you back to talk about that other part (laughs) yes thank you very much for having me this has been so much fun (laughs) thank you and of course thank you dr glenn woolman for hosting another great show and um, again we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information we're grateful for your continuous support and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better You can connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website, glennwoolman.com, where I do encourage you to learn about his metaphor square breath. And if you would like to um, find Dr. Chowdhury, contact us here at Yoga Hub, um, either through the website, uh, and as you can scroll down, you can type it into the comment box, or you can give us a call here at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK. So again, until next time, we look forward to having you join us and um, have a wonderful, wonderful day. Namaste. Namaste.